If you have a Bible, please open to 1 Thessalonians. We're working our way through this inspired portion of God's Word. You should find an outline in the bulletin, and there are printed uh, manuscripts of the message at both exits. You can get one either now or later, or if you're technically inclined, they're on the church website. You can uh, call it up on your device and track with it that way. And the last uh, 24 years' worth of messages are on the website as well, both printed and audio. Uh, We're in verses 13 to 16 this morning, where Paul writes, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not Uh, pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Pray that God will bless his word this morning. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to the American church when persecution intensifies. I did not say if persecution intensifies, but when persecution intensifies. Uh, It's already begun in some minor ways, uh, comparing ourselves to our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer far more than we can imagine Uh, But I would say that unless there is widespread revival in America soon, uh, persecution against Christians is going to grow worse in the next few years. And my aim in this message is to try to help you prepare for it. We've already in our country seen businesses who have been uh, forced out of business. They've been fined and can't afford the fines, that sort of thing, because of their alleged discrimination against the LGBT agenda. Uh, There's pressure both now from the government and from politically correct corporations, as you may know, to force all of us to accept men who think that they are women entering women's restrooms and using women's shower facilities. Um, I think the NBA changed their playoff game next year from North Carolina because of that issue. Another front, a graduate student I read about working on her counseling degree was forced out of her degree program because she simply said that if a homosexual came to her for counsel, because of her religious beliefs, she would refer uh, that person to another counselor, and that was not good enough. Uh, She had to uh, accept that person and their lifestyle, and so she was forced out of her graduate program. Um, In two states, at least so far, and it'll probably increase, uh, it is illegal for a licensed counselor to try and counsel a homosexual person to uh, become heterosexual. Um, That's not allowed. You cannot do that legally in California and, I believe, New Jersey. Um, Campus ministries have been forced off of college campuses because they refuse to allow homosexuals to be part of their leadership. It's not that they're excluding them from attending their meetings, but because they won't welcome them in on the leadership level, they have been forced off campus. I am not a prophet, but I think I can predict that in the future, um, 
churches and other ministries that hold to the biblical view on homosexuality, we will lose our tax-exempt status on donations, so it will cost you more to give. I believe military chaplains will be forced to perform homosexual weddings, and if they refuse, they will lose their commission. Uh, I think also public school teachers may well be fired if they refuse to teach diversity and tolerance to uh, their students. I think that Christian colleges and seminaries will likely lose their accreditation if they do not uh, promote the LGBT right thing. Uh, I think that those of you who are employed by the universities will perhaps lose your job if you refuse to sign that you agree with a uh, LBGT agenda. And even in secular companies, the way it's going, I think you could lose your job. Uh, We already have a member here who has had problems at work, not for preaching or promoting it, just simply for stating his view in a private manner. And that got to the higher-ups and got him in trouble because he said he believed the Bible teaches one man, one woman should be uh, together for life in marriage. Uh, Recently at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, both the party and their presidential candidate endorsed, strongly endorsed, abortion rights and the... the, um, program of Planned Parenthood, and Obamacare is trying to force that on Christian ministries and businesses. Um, Concerning homosexuality, here's what the Democrat said in their platform. We applaud last year's decision by the Supreme Court that recognized that LGBT people, like other Americans, have the right to marry the person they love. Now, I'm not condemning everything the Democrats stand for, and I'm certainly not endorsing everything the Republicans stand for. I'm just telling you that was their official statement in their platform. Already, there are pastors in Sweden, England, and Canada who have been arrested uh, because they have preached what the Bible says about homosexuality and I believe that Americans will soon be doing the same thing. So I believe we are headed for increasing persecution if we hold what the Bible teaches about these moral issues. Uh, The question that we all have to consider up front is, you know, will I persevere and will I hold to the Bible's teaching when I'm under persecution Or will I capitulate to the godless culture that we live in in order to avoid persecution? Now, all of this, of course, is what we see in our text. The new believers in Thessalonica, they were only a few months old in the Lord, living in was more severe than anything we will suffer here in the next decade or two. Um, They were under intense Uh, opposition and persecution. Uh, Paul, I believe, is indicating that their persecution, their holding up under persecution, is another evidence of what he referred to in chapter 1, verse 4, that they were God's chosen people, his elect. And in chapter 2, to give you a quick review, in verses 1 through 6, we saw Paul proclaiming the gospel with boldness, And then in verses 7 through 12, he lives the gospel with gentleness, using the analogies of a nursing mother and a a tender father. And now, as a result, in verses 13 to 16, the Thessalonians received the gospel as God's word with perseverance in spite of much persecution. There are three things here uh, to persevere under persecution. That Paul brings out, one in verse 13, one in 14, and one in 15 and 16. 
and that is to persevere under persecution, believe God's word, that's verse 13, imitate other persecuted believers, persevering believers who are being persecuted, uh, that's verse 14, and then trust that God is going to judge those who persecute his people, and that's verses 15 and 16. So let's work through that a little more carefully. First of all, to persevere under persecution, Paul says, believe God's word. Let me read verse 13 again. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Two things to point out there from that verse. First of all, believing God's word means receiving the gospel as God's word. Now, scholars are divided over for this reason. Uh, Some of your texts don't even have that phrase, but in the Greek text, it begins with for this reason. And the question is, is he talking about what went before or what he's about to say? And it can go either way. Uh, If it refers to what went before, Paul may be saying, because God has saved you through the gospel and because he's called you into his kingdom and glory, we constantly give thanks. And that's legitimate. Or looking ahead, it could mean because you received the word of God that we preach to you, not as our word, but as God's word, we constantly give thanks. Uh, I don't know how to decide which it refers to, maybe even both, but Uh, Either way, the point is Paul is constantly thankful to God because the Thessalonians had responded favorably to the gospel. And I believe that's what he's referring to primarily here when he says you receive the word of God. We've seen that Paul constantly refers to the gospel in this letter as the gospel of God. He does that in verse 3 of chapter 2, verse 8, verse 9. And that's emphasizing that this good news comes to us not from man, but from God himself. It's the gospel from God. But also, back in chapter 1, verses 6 and verse 8, he refers to the gospel as the word or the word of the Lord. And so that means that the gospel is a verbal message. It's a word and that it comes to us again from the Lord, from God. As a verbal message, what it means is the gospel has content. And we need to say that because we are under a deluge of postmodernism that says words don't matter, words don't really mean anything, we can't know the meaning of words, it's the story that counts, and it's all on an emotional level kind of thing. But the Bible very strongly affirms that the Bible is, the gospel has content. It centers on a person, Jesus, and he is in fact called the Word of God. Uh, in John 1, you're familiar with these verses, but to refresh you, John 1, 1 uh, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and The Word was God. And then in case we wonder who is this Word, down in verse 14, he adds, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring to Jesus. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18 he adds, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus explains the Father to us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 begins that letter this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, uh, that corresponding to John 1. 
So all of God's word from Genesis to Revelation centers on the person of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God to us in human flesh. Way back in Genesis 3, I believe God gives a a prelude to the gospel. You'll remember after Adam and Eve sinned, what God did was to slay an animal in their presence, and we need to remember how shocking that would be. They had never seen death. And then he clothed them, covered their nakedness with the animal skin. And I believe that's a picture of what he would do for us through Jesus Christ. Um, That we needed a blood sacrifice to cover our sin. And that the Bible says when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him. And if you protest against that doctrine, well, you're going against the Bible, but even if you do, you've got sin of your own you've added to. So we have inborn sin in Adam, and then we have our sins we have added, and uh, so we all stand guilty before God, and we can't pay the debt of our sin. What God did in mercy was sent his eternal son to take on human flesh As God, his sacrifice could satisfy the righteousness of God. As man, his sacrifice could cover human sin. And so, the good news of the gospel is that God offers a full pardon, eternal life to every person who will receive the gift that he offers in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul sums it up well in Romans 6.23. He says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when Paul was in Thessalonica in Acts 17, 2 and 3, we read that he went to the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, that would mean the Old Testament, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, Jesus, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And so Paul used the scripture, the word, to talk about the word Jesus and explain the gospel to the Thessalonians in the synagogue. And the Jews already accepted the the Old Testament as God's word, so he started there. It's interesting, later in Acts 17, when Paul went to Mars Hill and he was presenting the gospel to the philosophers there, uh, he uses a different approach. He cites some of their own poets and some of their philosophers, but he's arguing toward the same point that he made in the synagogue about Jesus, and he concludes his sermon there by saying in Acts 17, 30 and 31, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he is fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, my counsel is, if you're sharing the gospel with people who don't believe the Bible is the word of God, and they want to argue that point, I don't argue that point with them. They don't. They can't comprehend that. The, the natural man cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. What I try to do rather and encourage you to do is challenge the person, and my guess is they have not read the Bible carefully in most cases. I challenge them to read the Gospel of John. And John said, I wrote these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. So I just challenge him, read the Gospel of John, but read it this way with the sincere prayer of saying, Lord, if if this is truly your word and Jesus is truly the Savior, open my eyes that I might see and understand. If they will read it with that prayer and that kind of a heart toward God, I believe he will reveal himself to them. God's word is powerful. You know how God started the whole thing, the universe? By his word. Let there be light. Bam, there's light. 
And, you know, let there be, let there be. And, and God spoke there in Genesis 1 over and over. His word is powerful. And in Isaiah 55, 11, it's a verse I count on every single Sunday I preach. God promises, my word will not return to me empty without accomplishing the purpose for which I send it forth. And so just... Focus on the Word when you're sharing the Lord with people. Get them into the Bible, Gospel of John, and uh, the Word is powerful. Uh, I don't debate with them. Is it God's inspired Word or not? It, it will show them if they read it, and God will use it uh, to that end. So the starting place for persevering through persecution is believe that the Gospel is not the word of men. The gospel is the word of God. And then secondly, believing God's word requires, as Paul says here, allowing the word to do its powerful work in you. He adds, the word of God also performs its work, not in everyone, but in you who believe. And believe is in the present tense, indicating an ongoing belief. We believe in Christ when we receive the gospel, but we don't stop believing there. We have to keep believing daily in the Lord, trusting in him. And as we do that, <clears throat> Paul says that the gospel, the I mean the uh, word, will do its work in us as we believe. Now, If you truly believe that the word of God is not the word of men, but it is God's revealed truth, you will study it diligently to find out what it teaches. Um, You know, if you say, I believe in seatbelts, I just never buckle up. The point is, you don't believe in seatbelts. You have to take action. And if you believe in the word of God, then it is your daily food. It is your strength. It is your source of wisdom and knowledge. You, you pour over it continually and, and try to understand, how does this apply to my life? And concerning persecution, the Bible is full of it. From the very first martyr, Abel, first family, he gets murdered because his deeds are righteous and his brothers are wicked. Um, all the way through, and it gives real-life stories of men and women who endured trials, they endured persecution, some of them were martyred, some of them survived, but we have their stories in the Bible so that we can learn from them and imitate their faith. Um, in the New Testament, the whole first letter to Pete, of Peter to uh, those who were scattered abroad had to do with how to endure persecution. And there are many, many other examples in the Bible of uh, teaching from God's word, how it can perform its work in you. But it only does that if you're in it. God's work isn't magic. It doesn't perform its work in you if you put it on your shelf and keep it dusted off. Um, you, You have to open it. Now, when you open it, don't just go to your favorite verses. Um... You know, I, I like the little Our Daily Bread devotionals, and, and that gets you into the Word. But I would prefer that you read the Word consecutively from Genesis to Revelation in some scheme. You can get Bible reading schemes online easily um, because the Word of God has a balance to it. And as you read from the, the Old Testament, the New Testament each day, God uses his word to round out your life, to give you an understanding of who God is and how you should live. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13, 12 and 13 says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Uh, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have 
to do. He's referring to the living word of God. He, he peers right down into our souls. Now, if that sounds a little threatening to you, remember this. God never exposes our sin to harm us, but only to help us. Because sin always destroys. Sin always harms relationships. It harms individuals. Uh, there is no beneficial sin. You know, if you go to the doctor and you're saying, man, I got this pain deep in my gut. And he says, oh, you're a wonderful person. You know, you're just so great. I love your smile. And he gives you a hug and sends you out the door. You're going to say, you know, I don't think he's a very good doctor. I want him to probe deep enough to say, you know, what's going on in there? And if there is a problem, then he needs to address that problem, even if it involves surgery. Uh, You know, it's got to be cut out. He's got to get in there and fix the deep problem. And the Bible does that with us. It goes deep and it exposes our very motives. And as you read it, you just go, oh, whoa, it's like a mirror. And you see your face and you realize, I'm dirtier than I thought. But it's not that you would be put down by that. It's so that you would be cleansed and lifted up by that. So don't be afraid of getting into the Bible. And if it steps on your toes, well, it's for a good reason. But persevering under persecution, and that always tests the reality of our faith. It comes when we believe God's word and the many promises in his word given to those who suffer. A second thing here, and here we move to verse 14, is that to persevere under persecution, imitate persevering believers. And the Bible, again, gives us many examples of such a thing. Um, Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. You know, sometimes when we're suffering, and it could be a wide range of suffering, maybe it's a health problem, perhaps it's an emotional issue you're wrestling with, a family conflict, persecution, some sin problem, whatever you're suffering from, we all have the tendency to think, I must be the only person with this problem in the entire world. That's just the way we gravitate. Even Elijah, the great prophet, remember when he was being persecuted by uh, wicked Queen Jezebel? Lord, they've persecuted your prophets, and I alone am left. You know, I'm the only guy on the whole earth going through this. And the Lord kind of reminds him gently, no, i got 7,000 others, Elijah, who are out there, and they haven't bent their knee to Baal yet either. Um, but we, we tend to do that. And because of that tendency, I think Peter in 1 Peter uh, 4.12 wrote to persecuted Christians, and he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as if some strange thing were happening to you. And then just a few verses later in chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, he adds, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, here's the reason for our suffering. He will use it to perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the dominion forever and ever. So Peter reminds us, you're not alone. Your brothers in the world, they're suffering the same thing, and God is going to use it in your life, and by the way, God is sovereign. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And those are precious truths to hold us up in a time of suffering. You know, the Bible just is so good in this. I Every morning I read a psalm. I just read through the psalms consecutively, and when I'm done, start over again, and you get through it a couple times a year that way. And the psalms are so down-to-earth and real because often in the psalms, 
the psalmist starts off and he's in despair and he's being persecuted and people are saying bad things about him and all kinds of horrible things are going on in his life. And then typically in a psalm, he begins to recite what God has done in the past and God's covenant to his people and, and who God is, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, his mercy, all of these things. And by the end of the psalm, in every psalm except one, I just read that one this week, uh, it ends on an upper. The psalmist comes back to saying, praise the Lord, you know, I'll trust him. You know what that one is where he doesn't? Psalm 88. It ends on a downer. And I don't know, maybe the reason is once in a while you go to bed on a downer. And in the morning it seems better. But uh, only that one psalm. And even in it, there's hints that the psalmist is trusting God. But um, And then the prophets. I just finished Jeremiah. Now I'm in Ezekiel. But, uh, you know, poor Jeremiah, he preached and preached and preached and got zero results. And uh, negative results, in fact. They went the opposite direction. And he suffered because Jeremiah uh, did not say what the false prophets were saying. They were crying out, peace, peace. And Jeremiah says, but there is no peace. Jeremiah pointed out their sin, and they didn't like that. And it's no different today. You know, if you tell people, here's what God wants you to hear, you're not always the most popular person, but uh, that's the word of the Lord, so we have to be faithful to it. Um, In addition to reading your Bible, I would encourage you to read Mission Magazine's Voice of the Martyrs, I read that, and and the stories in there uh, will sober you, cause you to pray for these brothers and sisters, make you think about, what would I do if that happened to me? Uh, Read Christian biographies, especially missionary biographies. There's just some great ones. Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, uh, John and Betty Stamm had their heads cut off by the Chinese back in the 1930s. John Payton, the the stuff he endured um, as he preached among cannibals. Every year at the Olympics, I wait for Vanuatu to come out in the March of the Nations. Because you know why? That's where Payton went. And when he went there, the people there had eaten the first missionary who set foot on the island. They killed him within hours and ate him. And uh, Payton went there, and today... That island is more Christian percentage-wise than the United States. And uh, they aren't eating missionaries there anymore. So when they come out, I go, wow, there's the gospel. You know, there's the gospel. But read these biographies. They're wonderful. Uh, Whenever I read about or think about how Judson and his wife suffered to take the gospel to Burma, it kind of puts my problems in perspective. You know, they're pretty puny because they really suffered hardship for Christ. Hebrews 13.7 exhorts us this. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So, first of all, then, to to persevere under persecution, believe God's word. And then secondly... um, imitate other persevering believers, and thirdly, to persevere under persecution, trust that God will judge those who persecute his people. At the end of verse 14, Paul mentions the Jews, and then he continues in verses 15 and 16, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's a strong outburst of Paul, and it's led to several different results in terms of interpreters. Some of the more liberal interpreters say, Paul didn't write this. It must have been a later scribe who didn't like the Jews who inserted this. But the problem is there's no manuscript evidence to support that. So that can't be right. 
others say, well, Paul is just plain anti-Semitic, but that's not right because if Paul was anti-Semitic, so was Jesus in Matthew 23 when he reams out the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation for their unbelief. Um, Also, you remember in Romans 9, Paul said that if he could, he would even forfeit his own salvation if his fellow Jews would come to Christ. Obviously, Paul loved the Jews. Whenever he went to a new town, if there was a synagogue, that's where he went first, was to preach in that synagogue. Only when the Jews rejected him did he turn to the Gentiles. So it doesn't make sense to say Paul was anti-Semitic. So, how do we explain Paul's vehement outburst here against the Jews? Well, I think we just have to think about Paul's history. Right after he came to Christ in Damascus, on the Damascus Road, you remember, he, he met the Lord. Uh, he faced opposition from the Jews, and they sought to kill him. He had to escape by being let down over a bas- by, in a basket over the wall and fleeing. He went to Jerusalem, and uh, there again, the Jews tried to kill him. He had to flee to Tarsus, to his hometown up there in what is modern Turkey. Uh, While he was serving the church in Antioch in Syria, uh, the Judaizers showed up, and they tried to undermine Paul's gospel, and they dogged his steps wherever he went. He wrote the book of Galatians against them. When Paul was on his first missionary journey in a place called Pisidian Antioch up in Turkey again, uh, the Jews opposed him and drove him out of that city, him and Barnabas. Uh, They went to Iconium, and the disbelieving Jews there stirred up the Gentiles against those who believe, and they attempted to stone Paul, but God got him out of there before the rocks started flying. He went to Lystra, The Jews showed up again and persuaded the pagan Gentiles there actually to stone Paul. And they stoned him and left him for dead, and God miraculously raised him up. Same thing happened in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Corinth. Everywhere Paul went, he, he received opposition from the Jews. Then you remember the story of how Paul labored at length to raise funds for the poor Jews in Jerusalem who were going through a difficult time. And he did that, and he delivered the gift there, and he's in the temple worshiping in Jerusalem when the Jews falsely accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, and they mobbed him and were about to beat him to death when the Roman soldiers intervened. They uh, were going to take Paul to Caesarea, And the Jews formed a plot and said, we're going to not eat until we kill Paul, Uh, uh, you know, ambush him on the way. Uh, They must have got pretty hungry uh, because God (laughs) spared Paul. But then the Jews pressed charges against him and accused him of sedition against the Roman government. And that eventually uh, resulted in his going to Rome to stand trial. But uh, he had suffered greatly at the hands of the Jews. So I think he had some reasons to write the words that he writes here. Now, we need to say this, though. Paul is obviously making a generalization. Not every Jew is the way Paul describes them here, because Paul is a Jew, and he got saved, and all the apostles are Jews, and they all got saved, and then there's men like Barnabas and many, many other faithful Jewish men and women who love the Lord. So he's making a generalization. And by doing that, he is warning the Jews, don't be like your people. Now, we live in a day of political correctness. And in our day, if you make a generalization, you get accused of being homophobic or racist Or if you say something against Islam, you're religiously bigoted. You can't make generalizations, you see, because people don't think through issues carefully. They would rather just get the package. 
Label it, believe it, and then you don't have to do the hard work of thinking through matters in various ways. I believe there are helpful generalizations. And I don't think we should shy away from making them because it's not politically correct. I believe someone needs to point out that this whole transgender thing is insanity. It's just madness. You know, parents are taking their children through sex change operations. That should be child abuse. You know, that is just against God's word who made us male and female. Uh, If a man thinks he's a woman, he needs spiritual help. He's in sin. He needs to sort through issues according to the word of God. Um, It is against God's created order for a man to have sex with a man or a woman with a woman. Romans 1 condemns that clearly. And we need to be saying that. Um, Concerning Islam, there is political correctness out there. Oh, it's a religion of peace. I encourage you to go to religionofpeace.com and you'll find out about how peaceful it is. Um, Ever since Islam was founded, it has conquered by the sword. No exceptions. It has always conquered by killing people. And if you didn't agree with them, you are not religiously free if you survive. That is their method. Wherever it has gone, it does not promote religious freedom. It teaches jihad against all infidels very clearly. Now, that's not to say that every Islamic person is jihadist. It's to say, it's to make a generalization. This is the way that religion is. And those who are not that way need to stop and think about it and maybe consider, maybe that's wrong. Maybe I need to come to Christ. Um, You know, Islam, the Quran, even has sections on how to keep your wife in subjection and if she doesn't submit to you, how to beat her properly. Uh, I listed the reference in the uh, printed notes there. You can look it up. And again, I'm not saying any of this to stir up hatred against Islamic people. To the contrary, I'm saying it to warn them and say, you're in a system that is not according to the word of God and you need to repent and come to Jesus Christ who offers mercy. And we ought to treat every individual, even a jihadist, with respect and love and share the good news of Christ. But we need to warn them, you're not in submission to Jesus as you are. And if you go on to death that way, you will face his eternal wrath. The Bible warns us of that so that we will repent and believe. Now, I might add here, not only the Jews are guilty of killing Jesus, every one of us is. Because our sin put Jesus on the cross. We sing that in one of our our songs. Um, And if somebody is going further than sinning, and they are sinning by keeping others from Christ, Paul mentions here how they hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, then they are adding to their guilt and doubly guilty of sin because they're preventing others from hearing the truth. Paul puts it this way in verse 16, they fill up the measure of their sins. It's a scary phrase. It goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham prophetically, your descendants will be uh, enslaved in a, in a foreign country for 400 years. And then I will bring them back to this land. And then God explains this in Genesis 15:16. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorites, and that's the Canaanites, they hadn't quite filled up the measure of their sins. In his sovereignty and omniscience, God knew that will be full 
in 400 years after the Jews are down in Egypt in slavery. And then God brought them into the land and gave the command to Joshua, slaughter the Canaanites. Now, I realize the slaughter of the Canaanites is a big stumbling block for a lot of people. How could God do that? You know, that doesn't sound like a loving God. If somebody brings that up with you, here's how to answer it. Has it ever occurred to you that God ordered the slaughter of every single person who has ever lived? Death is the curse for sin. And God is righteous to impose the death penalty on every single person who has ever lived. Because he is God and because we've sinned against him. And Jesus, in Luke 13, 3, warned, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. He was referring to people that brought up the death of some innocent people at the hands of Pilate. And some, a tower fell down and killed him. And Jesus said, yeah, they all died. And you're going to perish too if you don't repent. That's the message for us that death should say, I'm going to die. I need to repent and turn to the Lord where there's mercy. Now, one other thing in verse 16, what does Paul mean when he says, but wrath, and in Greek there's the article, but the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. He uses there an aorist verb, and the aorist tense can be used in many different ways. I believe that here... It's looking at God's wrath in its entirety, and it's picturing it as a certain event, even though the ultimate fulfillment is still in the future. And I believe that that fulfillment has perhaps been fulfilled in installments, and it's all going to come to a culmination at the very end. A.D. 70, Titus went into Jerusalem and killed over a million Jews and wiped out everything. That was an initial fulfillment. There's the partial hardening of the Jews. Paul refers to it in Romans 11.25, and it's happened now for 2,000 years. There's been a veil over their eyes. They, they have shut out from the gospel in large part. I believe Hitler's awful slaughter of 6 million Jews was, again, a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of this. And then in Zechariah 13.8, It predicts a time that I take it as still future where two-thirds of the Jews will perish and one-third will turn to Messiah and be saved. And that is all included, I believe, in what Paul means when he says the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, the lesson for us is twofold. If you're a believer and you're being persecuted, keep believing in the gospel. Because in spite of the suffering, you need to know, as Paul says at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate you from God's great love in Christ. And then look to others who have faithfully suffered and died for the gospel and imitate their faith and trust that God has a sovereign purpose for your persecution and that in his wise time, he's going to right every wrong and he's going to bring every wrongdoer to just punishment and none will escape. If you're here this morning and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ in the gospel, then the clear message is repent and flee from the wrath to come because judgment is coming and you still have time. And in his mercy, God always delays judgment. But the Bible is clear. There comes a time where their their sins are filled up to the full. That's it. And God brings judgment. And in the book of Revelation, it warns that a time is going to come when God's enemies will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What an exquisitely ironic phrase that is. The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who? is able to stand. Don't be so foolish as to shrug off God's clear warning. 
Dear Father, these are sober words that you give us, but we know that it's always for our healing when you confront our sin. I would ask that if any of your saints are ignoring your warnings, you would grant them repentance and restoration. I pray, Lord, if any are here or hearing my words who have not believed in Jesus, that you would open their eyes to see their precarious position, that you would show them the abundance of grace for every sinner who comes to the cross, and that they would come and believe in Jesus. And we ask in his name, amen. We're going to conclude by partaking of the Lord's Supper, and if you're a Christian, you know Jesus. It's a time to just go before him and um, confess any known sins to him, examine your heart, thank him for his forgiveness and his mercy at the cross. And the ushers will serve everyone and just hold on until we're all served and then I'll lead us um, in just a few moments.